Good morning. Let us open our Bibles to Acts chapter 28. Few things compared to being in the worship center, sitting in the front, and hearing you sing. Sometimes I just shut up and listen because it is a wonderful, wonderful encouragement to hear the church sing. So thank you all for singing, for engaging. Acts 28, beginning in verse 1 through 10. After we were brought safely through, we then learned that the island was called Malta. The native people showed us unusual kindness, for they kindled a fire and welcomed us all, because it had begun to rain and was cold. When Paul had gathered a bundle of sticks and put them on the fire, a viper came out because of the heat and fastened on his hand. When the native, native people saw the creature hanging from his hand, they said to one another, No doubt this man is a murderer. Though he has escaped from the sea, justice has not allowed him to live. He, however, shook off the creature into the fire and suffered no harm. They were waiting for him to swell up or suddenly fall down dead. But when they had waited a long time and saw no misfortune, come to him, they changed their minds and said that he was a god. Now in the neighborhood of that place were lands belonging to the chief man of the island named Publius, who received us and entertained us hospitably for three days. It happened that the father of Publius lay sick with fever and dysentery, and Paul visited him and prayed, and putting his hands on him, healed him. And when this had taken place, the rest of the people on the island who had diseases came also and were cured. They also honor us greatly. And when we were about to sail, they put on board whatever we needed. May the Lord bless the reading of his holy word. And just like that, we have entered the very last chapter of Acts. After about, what, how many years? <laughs> it's, been a, it's been a while. Malta is an island located just south of Italy. The inhabitants back then were likely Phoenicians who spoke a dialect known as Punic. Although according to archaeological evidence, some of them also spoke Greek, which would explain why communication was even possible and how Luke was able to record what took place. Now, the question that I want us to consider this morning is, why are we in Malta at all? What's the point of this section of the narrative? Why should we care? What's in it for us? I think the answer to that question lies in the context of the entire book of Acts. So if you have your Bibles, I want you to be ready. We will be discussing several passages. As Luke wrote his book of Acts, he was building it up to a climax. Let me show you what that climax is by taking you all the way back to the beginning. Let's go to turn, I'm sorry, to Acts chapter 1, verse 3. All the way to the beginning. Luke began his book of Acts by telling us 
what Jesus did after his death and resurrection and before his ascension into heaven. Acts 1.3. It says that Jesus presented himself, how? Alive to them, the disciples, after his sufferings, by many proofs, appearing to them during 40 days and speaking about what? The kingdom of God. It only makes sense then that in verse 6 of the same chapter, the disciples asked, Lord, will you at this time restore what? The kingdom to Israel. Jesus had spoken of the kingdom for 40 days. What do you think the disciples were thinking about? The kingdom. But instead of saying yes or no to their question, the Lord Jesus tells them in verses 7 and 8 not to worry about timing but to get busy witnessing or speaking where? You know this, verse 8, Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the end of the earth. Why? Because the Spirit was coming. And what did the Spirit bring? Can anybody tell me? You will receive power when the Spirit comes. So what did the Spirit bring? Power. Now, if I am not mistaken, power is an essential component of a kingdom. Is it not? What good is a kingdom without power? So if Jesus tells the disciples that they will receive power in the Holy Spirit, wouldn't that mean that a kingdom was now in operation? How big? Well, how about this? From Jerusalem to the end of the earth. That sounds pretty big to me. Now turn to Acts chapter 8. Acts chapter 8. Up until this point in the book, Peter and others had been busy spreading the gospel in Jerusalem and the surrounding areas. But in chapter 8, we see Philip, one of the first deacons of the church, taking the gospel for the first time where? Samaria. Remember? Jerusalem, Judea, and now? Samaria. Now, as we read the account, I will ask you to pay special attention to the content of the preaching of the first disciples. We know that they preached everywhere, but what did they preach? Chapter 8, verse 4, we read that now those who were scattered after the, the stoning of Stephen went about preaching what? The word. There you go. In Samaria, Philip preached the word. Look at verse 5. Philip went down to the city of Samaria and proclaimed to them the word, the Christ. There you go. In Samaria, Philip preached the Christ. Now look at verse 12. But when they believed Philip as he preached the word, the Christ. Now the good news of what? The kingdom of God and the name of Jesus Christ. Well, which one is it then? Did Philip preach the word, the Christ, the good news of the kingdom of God, or the name of Jesus? Yes. The point is that to preach the word is to preach Christ. And to preach Christ is to preach the good news of the kingdom of God. And to preach the good news of the kingdom of God is to preach the name of Jesus Christ. They are used interchangeably and intentionally. Whether you preach the word or the Christ, you are doing the same thing. You are announcing what? A kingdom. 
you're announcing a kingdom, the kingdom of God. Go now to Acts chapter 14, verses 21 and 22. After Paul had been stoned nearly to death in Lystra, he rose up and went to the city of Derbe. In verse 21, we read, When they had preached the gospel to that city, meaning Derby, and he had made many disciples, they returned to Lystra and to Iconium and to Antioch, strengthening the souls of the disciples, encouraging them to continue in the faith, and saying that through many tribulations we must enter what? The kingdom of God. Paul had just experienced great tribulations in Lystra. He had stones thrown at him for the purpose of ending his life. It is safe to assume at this point then that Paul is basically telling these disciples that tribulations are a part of life in the kingdom. Therefore, do not grow discouraged by those tribulations, Paul says, because as a member of God's kingdom, even when you suffer, you still have joy in the Spirit. Now go now to Acts chapter 19. Are you getting a pattern here? Acts chapter 19. What did Paul do as soon as he came to Ephesus? Look at verse 8. And he, Paul, entered the synagogue, and for three months he spoke boldly, reasoning and persuading them about what? The kingdom of God. Based on what we have seen already, this proclamation of the kingdom was basically Paul preaching Christ to them. The point is this, preaching the kingdom is no different than preaching Christ or preaching the word. We have no reason to question that. Now go to chapter 20. Go to chapter 20. In verse 25, as Paul says farewell to the elders of the church in Ephesus, he does so with these words. Verse 25, and now behold, I know that none of you among whom I have gone about proclaiming what? The kingdom of God will see my face again. Paul once again summarizes his entire ministry in Ephesus, which went on for over two years like this. I proclaimed to you the kingdom of God. Now, let me show you how the book of Acts ends. Go to Acts 28. It shouldn't surprise us by now to discover that Luke will end his book not with one, but two references to what? You know it by now. The kingdom of God. Look at the halfway through verse 23. Once Paul gets to Rome, from morning till evening, he expounded to them, testifying to the kingdom of God and trying to convince them about Jesus, both from the law of Moses and from the prophets. And now consider with me verse 31, the very last verse of the entire book. We read that Paul spent how many years? Two years proclaiming what? The kingdom of God and teaching about the Lord Jesus Christ. So what is the climax of the book of Acts? The kingdom of God. The book of Acts begins and ends with the kingdom of God. And in between, the kingdom appears in highly significant moments. So if you're wondering about the title of this sermon, that might explain it. I simply want to follow Luke's own emphasis as we enter the last chapter. And we have come to the island of Malta. Why? Now we know the answer. Now we know the answer. 
we are in the island of Malta because God is in the business of expanding his kingdom to the ends of the earth. And the events that unfold on the island of Malta provide several insights concerning God's kingdom. I have five insights in particular that I want to share with you this morning. So now that we have the introduction, let's get into the sermon. Now the 40 minutes start, okay? <laughs> if you're timing me, that's, I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. It's 50 minutes. Uh, okay. So I get, here's the first insight concerning God's kingdom. First thing we learn is God's kingdom is sovereign. God's kingdom is sovereign. Jesus has all what? Authority. Jesus has all authority. And that's what sovereignty refers to. To be sovereign means to have authority over a certain realm or, or territory. In the case of the kingdom of God, in Christ Jesus, that authority is cosmic over both heaven and earth. But we can be even more specific now. The comprehensive authority of Jesus has a supreme objective. Supreme objective. In fact, go with me to Ephesians chapter 1, verse 22. Ephesians chapter 1, verse 22. What is the purpose of the Father giving Jesus, his incarnate Son, comprehensive authority over both heaven and earth? Ephesians chapter 1, verse 22 says that all things, how many things? All things have been put under the feet of Jesus and that Jesus had, has been placed as head over how many things? All things to or for the sake of the church. For the sake of the church. This means that the supreme objective of Christ's comprehensive authority is to ensure that the church is built. And that no enemy of the church, including the gates of hell itself, can stand in her way. It is upon that authority that Jesus could tell Ananias to go find Saul of Tarsus and tell him that his entire purpose, the entire purpose of his entire life was about to change. And it is upon that comprehensive authority that Jesus could say what that purpose was, namely to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. And so Paul is now in Malta for two reasons. He is taking Christ's name to Gentiles, and he is on his way to carry Christ's name before the emperor. Yes, my friends, only one who is sovereign can say from the beginning what will take place in the end. All of which naturally leads us to the next truth about God's kingdom. God's kingdom, number two, is not only sovereign first, but God's kingdom, second, is synergistic. Synergy. Synergistic. I know some of you are saying, well, what about monergism? Huh? Let me explain what I mean. In Romans chapter 8, verse 28, Paul says that for those who love God, all things do what? Work together for good. In English, we need two words to get the message across. Work together. In Greek, it only takes one word. Paul says, all things synergei. Does that sound familiar? Synergy. Synergei for good. For good. 
hence the word synergy. When I say that the kingdom of God is synergistic, I mean exactly that. Due to the sovereignty of God's kingdom, all things ultimately work together for kingdom purposes. Notice all the things that have happened so far. Murderous plots in Jerusalem. Trials in Caesarea. A stormy sea. A shipwreck. And if it wasn't for the centurion liking Paul, he would have been killed by a Roman sword. But all things, sunergei, all things work together. In God's kingdom, no circumstance is wasted. We don't know what happened to most of the 276 people who made it to the island of Malta. But we do know this. They were all exposed to God's kingdom through the life and ministry of Paul for three months. But more things happened on Malta. Having survived the sea, the Bible says that they are now freezing from being soaking wet. And to top it all off, rain starts falling down as soon as they came to the island. How about some sunshine to give them a little break for just a few hours? But no, they get a cold and rainy day to welcome them to the island after almost drowning in the sea. But all things, you know the word now, sunergei. All things work what? Together. And at this point, we need to stop and think a bit harder. The rainy weather created the need for a fire. Paul went around looking for sticks to get it going. And from that point, we see basically two sets of circumstances that take over the narrative. A snake bite, followed by miraculous healings. A snake bite, followed by miraculous healings. Now, go in your Bibles. I want to show you something interesting here. Go to Mark chapter 16. Interestingly, this is one of the most debated sections of Scripture. But Jesus is recorded as saying these words about his disciples and their mission to the world. This is actually Mark's version of the Great Commission. This is Mark's version of the Great Commission. Mark 16, verse 18. Listen to what Jesus says. They will, his disciples, as they go into the world, they will pick up what? serpents with their hands, and if they drink any deadly poison, it will not hurt them. And then it says this, they will lay their hands on the sick, and they will recover. If you think about it, that sounds almost like a summary of Acts chapter 28, verses 1 through 10. There's a snake encounter that doesn't affect Paul, followed by multiple healings through Paul's hands. What's the point? The point is that in the Bible... Signs and wonders were manifestations of the power of the kingdom of God. So the kingdom is synergistic in the sense that the Lord can use all things from the unexpected and the tragic to the out of the ordinary and evil to demonstrate his power. Now turn in your Bibles now to Matthew chapter 12. Matthew chapter 12, and I want us to consider verse 28. This matters for the narrative we're reading in Acts chapter 28. Matthew 12, verse 28. Jesus had just been accused of casting out a demon by whose power? By the power of Satan, by the power of the evil one. But in his response to that accusation, he starts to talk about kingdoms. Interesting. 
If Satan, Jesus says, if Satan casts out demons, Jesus said, then his kingdom is divided against himself or against itself. Why would Satan do that? That was a very logical answer. Why would Satan want to be against himself? And then in verse 28, he gives the punchline. Here it is. But, he says, if it is by the power of the Spirit of God that I cast out demons, then what's true? Then the kingdom of God is, has come upon you. If the Spirit is the power behind the casting out of demons, then God's kingdom has arrived. That's what Jesus is saying. The Holy Spirit is now defeating unholy spirits, which can only mean that a greater kingdom is now taking over a lesser kingdom. So remember, if the Spirit is here, then the kingdom is here. Now hold that thought as we turn to Romans chapter 15, verses 18 and 19. I told you we were going to be busy looking around the scripture. So go to Romans chapter 15, verses 18 and 19. In these verses, Paul explains his ministry to the Gentiles and the reach of the gospel. Listen to what he says in verse 18. For I will not venture to speak of anything except what Christ has accomplished through me by word and deed, by the power of signs and wonders, by the power of whom? The Spirit of God. So that from Jerusalem and all the way around to Illyricum, I have fulfilled the ministry of the gospel of Christ. Now, did you hold that thought that I told you to hold to? What do the words of Jesus and Paul have in common? Well, their ministry was done by the power of the Holy Spirit. Therefore, both Jesus and Paul, and we could add the other apostles, worked signs and wonders to announce, to demonstrate, and expand one and the same reality, the kingdom of God. As one author said, and I quote, Jesus' healings and exorcisms were an intrinsic part of his proclamation of the kingdom or rule of God. The mighty deeds and the proclamation must go together, neither can be understood without the other, end quote. So yes, Acts chapter 28, verses 1 through 10, is showing us the arrival of God's kingdom in Malta. And it arrived with power. The snake bite only served to expose the natives' wrong ideas of the divine. First, as we read, they thought Paul was a murderer who had managed to escape death by drowning only to be killed by a snake. The next moment was followed by the thought that he was a god who could withstand the poison of a snake. In short, the Maltans were in darkness. They were void of the knowledge of the truth. They did not know what to believe at any given moment. They were being tossed to and fro by every wind of doctrine. But thankfully, all things sunergei, all things work together. The kingdom of God had now arrived in Malta, and it brought with it its king. And because this is king, and, and the king is Christ Jesus, this kingdom also came with another characteristic. It is not only a sovereign kingdom and a synergistic kingdom that works all things together for God's purposes, but number three, God's kingdom is compassionate. Compassionate. People were healed. People were healed. Interestingly, in chapter 28, verse 2, 
It describes the natives of the island as being exceptionally kind. Exceptionally kind. In fact, it is a bit shocking because Luke uses a word that only appears one other time in the New Testament, in Titus chapter 3, verse 4, where Paul speaks of God's loving kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. The word is philanthropia. Does it sound familiar? Philanthropia. These natives of Malta loved humanity. They showed it by their good deeds toward Paul and the 275 other people. Even the chief man in the island, Publius, hosted them in his own home for three days, some of them at least. He welcomed strangers into his own home. And yet it wasn't a kindness rooted in truth. We know this because at some point they thought Paul was a god. And they also believed, according to verse 4, that justice was a goddess. So they were very kind, but they were still lost in darkness. The Maltas showed kindness in order to alleviate an immediate suffering. But Paul turned around and showed compassion to them in order to display a new kingdom. A kingdom with a compassionate king. So what does Paul do? He follows his own instruction to the Colossians in, verse, in chapter 3, verse 12, and puts on a compassionate heart expressed through the granting of physical healing. Apparently, during this time in that region of the world, many became sick through goat's milk. Goat's milk. This might have been the cause of dysentery, which is an infection that attacks the intestines, producing very miserable symptoms. Among those affected by this, according to verse 8, was Publius' father. But the kingdom of God in Christ Jesus had arrived in Malta. So Paul, as an announcer of that kingdom, went to visit the man to show the compassion of King Jesus. He healed the man by the power of the Spirit of Jesus. And eventually, according to verse 9, all the people with diseases came to Paul to be healed. This shows compassion. Compassion. Expressed through practical relief. I think this is something that we could do better at. At least thinking about my own self. I'm going to speak for myself. Caring for the needs of others. Let me just speak very personal here. I still remember the excitement that Reformed theology created within me many years ago when I first discovered it, when I first began to understand the greatness of God's sovereignty. It was wonderful. I think Reformed theology does come with its own emphasis, an emphasis upon the mind, an emphasis upon knowing, knowing. And it is good. It has served me well. But I think that the danger faced in some Reformed circles in general is to so emphasize the knowing part that we can begin to forget about the caring part. In some other circles, the danger is the opposite. They so emphasize the caring that they neglect the knowing. And so we can either become satisfied with our knowing or with our caring, but it is hard to find churches that earnestly seek to do both. Earnestly seek to do both. 
Some churches so earnestly seek to grow in doctrinal knowledge that they become a little more than theological clubs with little to no relevance to their communities in which they have been placed. Other churches so earnestly seek to care for their communities that they become ambassadors of a social gospel void of saving power. You see, it is possible to care and not know as it is to know and not care. Paul, however, what did he do? He cared deeply about people. Why? Because he knew his God. He cared deeply about people because he knew his God. He knew God, therefore he loved. If we have one without the other, something is wrong. When the apostles in Jerusalem, James, Peter, and John, gave Paul and Barnabas the right hand of fellowship, and sent them off to go to the Gentiles, as they were leaving, these three apostles said this one thing to Paul. One thing. They said, remember the poor. Remember the poor. To which Paul responded, that's the very thing I was eager to do. It's interesting because we think of Paul as this great theologian, and he was, but he also loved people. When Paul went to Malta, He actually eased the suffering of the people there to manifest God's kingdom in the power of the Spirit. Likewise, we, as the people of God, should constantly ask ourselves, what can we do? In the community in which we have been placed to ease the sufferings of those around us in order to show God's kingdom and the compassion of the king that we say that we know. Remember this, we are God's workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for what? For good works which God prepared beforehand that we should ignore them. Is that what it says? No, that God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. This is, this is a highly convicting passage for me in Acts chapter 28, verse 1 through 10. The love of the Apostle Paul, the actual caring for easing the suffering of the people around him. And this flows quite naturally into our fourth aspect of God's kingdom, which should be very obvious by now, and it is this. God's kingdom is one. God's kingdom is one. Why? Christ is all. Christ is all. Go to Colossians chapter 3. Colossians chapter 3. When I say that the kingdom of God is one, I don't mean just one in number, although that's true. There's only one kingdom of God. But I mean one in essence. One in essence. Acts chapter 28, verses 1 through 10, is a beautiful picture of this. When Luke mentions the natives in verse 2, the Greek word there to describe the natives is Barbaroi. Does it sound familiar? From which we get the English word barbarians. Barbarians. You see the word native is a little softer, right? But the word barbarian was meant to sound like gibberish. A barbarian was called that in a pejorative sense because they didn't speak the language of the world, namely, what? Greek. 
And if you didn't speak Greek and you hadn't adopted the Greek culture, you were a stranger in this world, you were a barbarian. You didn't belong. And yet, here we are. In Acts chapter 28, barbarians from Malta being invited by the Lord Jesus himself to come and belong to the kingdom through the words and deeds of the Apostle Paul. So Colossians chapter 3, verse 11, what do we read? Now it makes sense. Colossians 3, 11, here, therefore, Paul said, there is not Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised. What else? Oh, barbaroi, barbarian, Scythian, slave, free, but Christ is all and in all. And by the way, the fact that Paul even mentions barbarians means that they were already a part of those churches in Colossians. But the flesh always wants to divide, while the spirit always seeks to unite. In this kingdom, Christ is what matters. His blood is the same for you as it is for me. It covers all our sins. Your language, your culture, your education, your background, and your wealth are reduced to a matter of indifference when placed under the blood of Jesus Christ. You might be a highly sophisticated Greek philosopher or a barbarian with no distinguishable philosopher. It does not matter. Those who believe in Jesus as Savior and Lord who have put their faith in Him are one. We are one. The only question is, will we enjoy the unity we have in the Spirit or not? And so here we come to the fifth and final description of God's kingdom, and it is this. God's kingdom is first, sovereign. God's kingdom is second, what? Synergistic. God's kingdom is third, what? Compassionate. God's kingdom is number four, one. And God's kingdom is here. God's kingdom is here. Look around you. Look around you. Just look at the pulpit. <laughs> Can you think of anything we have discussed this morning that doesn't apply to us, the church? Jesus will build his church, which means he is sovereign over it. This being the case, all things sunergei. All things what? Work together for the good of the church. Moreover, our king is compassionate, is he not? He helps us in our weaknesses. He provides for our needs. He sustains us in our trials and grants us relief. And Jesus is a welcoming king who calls all people everywhere to trust them and to follow him, which means that every tongue and every tribe can now belong, even barbarians from Malta or Chile. Imagine that, a barbarian from Chile. The kingdom of God in Christ Jesus is here. It's here. So the only remaining questions are the following. First, for us to take home, do we rest? Do we rest in the sovereignty of our Lord? Second, do we know? Do we know that all things, you know it now, work together for our good? Do we despair when things are changing around us or do we trust that all things work together for our good because Jesus is sovereign? Number three, are we eager? Are we eager to extend our compassion to the needy and suffering? 
and forth. Will we strive, will we strive to maintain the unity of the Spirit? As members of God's kingdom in Christ Jesus, our answer to this should be a resounding yes and amen. So here's the bottom line question for you and for me to take home with us. How do we practically, how do we practically show the city of Glenrose and beyond that Grace Community Church is an embassy of God's kingdom? How do we practically show the city of Glen Rose and beyond that Grace Community Church is an embassy of God's kingdom? I'm not saying do we have a very definitive answer, concrete answer to that question. That's not my point. All I'm saying is this. Looking at the bottom line question is simply this. Are we willing to wrestle with that question? So here's my prayer. That the Lord will use this local church to show forth his kingdom for the good of man, for the sanctification of his people, and for the glory of his name. So join me now as we pray. Father, we thank you for this time in which we have been able to remind ourselves of basic but important truths. That if the Spirit is truly within us and among us, then your kingdom has arrived. And so help us to know what this means. Help us to know what it means to walk by the Spirit and not gratify the desires of the flesh. And as we do ministry here in Glen Rose, in this community, help us to know what it means to be ambassadors of this kingdom as we announce the reign and the rule of King Jesus, the one who died for our sins and rose again. And so may your spirit take what we have heard and apply it to each one of us and to us collectively as your body. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.